Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are your hosts, Marie Asensio and Michael Kloparmbeth. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond the Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. After months of tensions and failure of diplomacy to resolve the crisis, Russia has launched a multi-pronged attack on Ukraine. In today's episode, we first take a defense perspective on the situation. Why Ukraine? Why now? And what are the stakes for Russia and NATO? We then look at the role played by media and propaganda. How is Russia portraying the situation at home? What have been the impacts of this and can media be of any help? As this is a rapidly evolving situation, some of the information recorded for this episode might now be outdated. So we strongly encourage our listeners to stay up to date with recent developments. We're joined today with Professor Tracy German. Professor German is a lecturer in the Defense Studies Department at King's College London. Her research focuses on Russian foreign and security policies, particularly Russia's use of force in the post-Soviet space, conflict and security in the Caucasus and Caspian regions, and the impact of NATO-EU enlargement on Russia's relations with its neighbors. Prior to joining Defense Studies in 2004, she taught at the Royal Military Academy in Sanders and the University of Aberdeen, and spent several years as a research manager for a business intelligence company specializing in energy security in Russia and the post-Soviet states. She speaks Russian and has traveled extensively across the post-Soviet area. She's also an associate fellow at the Royal United Service Institute, the world's oldest and the UK's leading defense and security think tank. Professor German, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss the current crisis in Ukraine and Russia's intervention. Now, to provide our listeners with some context, could you please tell me the significance of Ukraine to Russia and why are we acting now? Okay, so there's a number of things there to unpack. Firstly, the particular significance of Ukraine to Russia. I think there's two strands here. There is the issue of security, um, Russian security, and both their domestic security, and they have concerns there that I'll go into, but also their um, security from external threats, and that is where I think the NATO angle comes in. So history of these two countries is extremely long. Um, and intertwined. But I think where we've got to go to to see the current crisis is obviously the disintegration of the USSR in 1991, Ukraine emerging as an independent state that wants to make its own foreign policy decisions. And in 2004, there was um, what's termed a coloured revolution in Ukraine, the so-called Orange Revolution, which took place after some very contested presidential elections that um, were considered, you know, that there was widespread electoral fraud, etc. And so there was a popular uprising within Ukraine that led to a pro-Western leader coming to power who sought to and push Ukraine further westwards and seeking alignment, alignment with NATO at that point and potential membership. But I think that is where we can see 
kind of the beginning of the crisis, the current crisis between Russia and Ukraine emerging. For Russia, the sense that Ukraine was seeking to a kind of head away from what Moscow perceived to be its sphere of influence. It's um, Russia terms its zone of privileged interest, and you know align much more closely with Western states and Western organizations such as NATO and the European Union. I think Moscow, that was perceived with concern, but also this sense that there had been a popular uprising and this sense that an incumbent leader and regime had been forced out and we had seen a new leader come in. And I think that continues to be of deep concern to the Russian president, to Vladimir Putin, that the same thing could happen to him. And Ukraine was seen to be heading to, you know, a path that could see it entering both NATO and the European Union at some point in the future. But more concerning, I think, for Moscow was this sense that it might become a fully functioning democracy on Russia's western border. And I think, you know, that speaks to the Russian concerns about its own domestic stability and security and concerns there that it may end up, you know, that Putin, Kremlin may face a similar uprising at some point in the future. And I think these are, I think, concerns that the Kremlin had. So this issue of both their own domestic stability, but also the sense that a state on Russia's western border was migrating further towards the West in terms of their strategic orientation and was therefore less willing to be influenced by Moscow. Thank you for briefing us in that, Professor German. Now, part of the discourse has included bringing back and remembering the annexation of Crimea. In your opinion, for Russia right now, is there any strategic military advantage in seizing more Ukrainian territory? Um, obviously, when it annexed Crimea in 2014, that really kind of solidified its position within the Black Sea. It has, has since lapsed the Soviet Union, it's kept a military base in Crimea, Sevastopol, naval base which enabled it to project power out of a kind of Black Sea region outside of the post-Soviet space and out into the Eastern Mediterranean. So the naval base in Crimea has been very, very important for Russia's kind of power projection outside of the post-Soviet space and further afield. Taking further territory from a defense perspective, does it, I don't think from a specific defense perspective, you know, further territorial gains do much from, you know, purely defense. But I think the issue here is kind of retaining control over a portion of Ukraine, continuing to be able to influence, prevent it becoming a NATO member in the future. And I think that that is what it's seeking to do, this, this destabilization, this sense of seeking to really 
pull Ukraine apart in terms of political stability and make it very difficult for it to act as a, a unified state. And I think that's, you know, what the concerns are, obviously, with the Donbass area that has you know, seen a conflict since 2014, Russian-backed separatists fighting Ukrainian forces. This has, you know, really, from a Ukrainian perspective, taken a you know, huge amount of military defence spending and a lot of their political attention being focused on that, that continuing, that sense of destabilisation is one reason why I think Russia has continued to support the separatists. Just like you mentioned, Professor German, it seems that Russia has and has always had a very strong position in Ukraine and it's very unwilling to back down from where it currently stands. I think that where the difference lays currently is that NATO members, particularly the United States, the United Kingdom, I think Canada as well just announced that it's going to send additional military contributions to support NATO in Ukraine, are taking a tougher stance on Russia's behavior. And I think that it is this position what has escalated the situation even further. Now, do you think that Russia is in a position where it's willing to de-escalate given NATO's response? Or are the hopes for de-escalation almost lost currently? Uh, that's a very good question. I mean, the signs today, um, which actually it's today in Russia, it's um, defender of the Fatherland Day, which is you know when they celebrate those that serve in the armed forces, military veterans. So there've been you know, speeches, etc. And Putin speaking today. Do I, I sense de-escalation? No. The signs are concerning. And I think with regards to NATO, I think he's in particular, he's been pushing and an attempt, I think, to see how unified the Allies truly are. And we have to remember that you know, Ukraine is not a NATO member state. It is a partner. And therefore, obviously, Article 5 does not cover Ukraine. And I think that that is what Putin has been counting on, that, you know, when push comes to shove, uh, will NATO as an alliance really stand firm? What kind of action will it take? And I think, you know, we've seen the sanctions that have been announced by a number of countries over the last day or so. And I, I do wonder... You know, they were probably already, I'm sure, costed in by Putin. He would have done a cost-benefit analysis here and decided that, okay, whatever my rationale is here, um, whatever I think I'm going to gain, I still think that I stand to gain more than has been, you know, imposed, the pain that's now been imposed by the sanctions, by the halting of Nord Stream 2, the pipeline. So I think at the moment, there's this kind of this standoff in terms of how 
far he thinks he's willing to push and what kind of response he thinks he's likely to get. And I think a lot of this is based on you know, what has gone on in the past. Um, and obviously, if we, we go back to 2008 and the war and the Russian intervention in Georgia, which was essentially triggered by, by Georgia announced, you know, saying it wants to become part of um, NATO. NATO saying, yes, Georgia and Ukraine could become member states at some point in the future. And then we saw an escalation within two separatist territories in Georgia, very similar to what we're seeing now, and then Russia intervening. And the response that you know, came from the West, including NATO to this in 2008 against Russia was was fairly mild. And I think Russia took a lesson that, well, um, (laughs) you know, the NATO member states, the West more broadly, they're not actually going to take any direct action against us. So I think this is probably feeding into his his calculations now. And in fact, you know, if you look at Russia politically, militarily, it is in a much better position. It's much stronger than it was back in 2008. So I think that will be playing into, you know, his calculations and his thinking. And yeah, I'm fairly pessimistic, actually, for any kind of de-escalation at the moment. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm also very pessimistic about de-escalation at the moment. I think that Russia has made it very clear that it's willing to go to great lengths for Ukraine. And I think that NATO has its hands tied at the moment with regards to what they can do to defend Ukraine's territorial sovereignty. And I know that there's lots of disagreement, even within NATO itself, as to what they can do, but also with regards to Ukraine's membership and just their overall approach to Ukraine. So if possible, could you provide us with a little bit of context once again as to what NATO's current approach to Ukraine is and what we can expect in the future? What are bilateral relations between NATO and Ukraine like as well? Yeah, that's a good question. So I just talked about 2008 and obviously that is when NATO's Bucharest summit declaration said that Georgia and Ukraine would become them states at some point in the future. Um, it was very vague in that respect. And you're absolutely right. A number of member states, even at that point, made it very clear that they didn't think this was a great idea. They didn't support membership of either of these states. And I think that sense of disunity amongst NATO allies, NATO member states, made you know sent signals to Moscow that it's you know the alliance wasn't united behind this and it you know Moscow has subsequently sought to to prevent either of these states actually taking steps forward to become full members. We've seen with regards to both Georgia and Ukraine they've become enhanced opportunity partners. Um, so they both, Ukraine has a partnership with NATO, and in 2020, they became kind of enhanced opportunity partners, which basically offers them, offers Ukraine the chance to build a much closer bilateral relationship between itself 
and NATO. And it's obviously been working towards greater interoperability with the alliance. It's contributed actively to a number of NATO missions, NATO-led missions and operations. And so, you know, in that respect, been working closely together, but as partners. And I think there has been, an, and I think there remains concern amongst some NATO member states about what it would mean for the alliance if you know, membership is offered, um, because you know, that then the Article Five commitment and obligation comes in. And obviously, I think. It's important to point out here as well that NATO's so-called open door policy, Article 10, does make it clear that, yes, membership remains open to all who, who want to join, but whose membership will contribute to security within the Euro-Atlantic area, which obviously giving membership to states that are going to cause greater instability. I think that is has always been where a number of allies have gone, mm, we're not sure about it further enlargement. And I you know a further enlargement of the alliance now I think is it's I think it's been in question for a, um, a little while, but I do wonder now we will see any future enlargement and particularly, into the post-Soviet space. I think that's very unlikely. And it does make me question what the ultimate outcome can look like for Ukraine. I think it's obvious that the majority of Ukrainians want to live in a free, independent, democratic state. But I think they are placed in a very unfortunate position where those wishes are not compatible with what Putin's Russia wants. And I think that, once again, he's making it clear that he's not willing to let go of Russia's hold in Ukraine and that he's willing to go to great lengths to prevent that from happening, to prevent Ukraine from, from moving forward. And again, with NATO's hesitancy of... Ukraine's membership into the alliance, but also with the limitations that they have and how they are going to approach and they are approaching the situation at the moment, it does make me question what continues to push Ukraine to align itself with NATO, but also what can we expect from this? What's going to happen eventually between Ukraine and NATO, but also with Russia? What, what's the final outcome going to look like? I think there's some really big kind of big international relations issues in, in there, actually, in this. Obviously, Ukraine, as a sovereign state, should have the right to choose its, its foreign policy direction, its strategic orientation, without you know, the influence of other states. However... That is just not proven to be the case. And I think what we see here is two very, very different approaches to international relations. I mean, you've got on the one hand, you've got Russia taking this very kind of tough of national interest, military security approach, very kind of 
very realist, very state and its own national interest is the most important thing. Um, cooperation with others, mm, we're not so interested. And then on the other side, we've got organisations such as NATO who are talking the language of partnership and cooperation, the, the spreading of liberal democratic values, the seeking to, you know, it, it expand what they call the, the zone of peace this kind of security community pushing it out and I think countries like Ukraine have almost got caught in between here and Ukraine sees the sense of okay so we want to you know, join this community to the west these values that they espouse the liberal democratic values the freedoms that come with that that I think we often take for granted, you know, the freedom of expression, freedom of movement, etc. But also, I think here, this is about security and this sense that has Russia provided us with security? And then the issue of seeking to move forward. And there's been some work done looking not just at Ukraine, but also countries like Georgia, where this sense that they're looking to move away from their Soviet pasts and move, you know, to a different future. Now, I think that the issue with Ukraine is that it has, you know, until 2014, it was quite, it was divided between those who thought that, yes, heading west was good idea was a positive one. and then you've got people who thought actually no we should stay within that the kind of russian i i don't like the term it's the term that russia uses but we should focus more on kind of the, the russian direction and we should look more towards russia and i think that you know that those divisions which really became you know came to a head in in 2013 2014 have We've seen them kind of reflected in, in Ukraine's foreign policy, so seeking to join NATO in 2008. And then in 2010, when Yanukovych came to power as president, he, he took a step back in this, um, and said, actually, we're going to essentially become non-aligned. We're not going to, you know, join any kind of organisation or bloc. We seek to tread a middle path, which is really what Ukraine had sought to do up until 2004. So I think there are some very, very difficult questions and, you know, a very, very difficult time. As I said, this is, you know, any country should have the right as a sovereign state to, to choose its, its future direction. But as we're seeing, some other states have different ideas. Now, you raise a very interesting point, and that is the idea of moving forward versus staying in the past and looking at our traditional values and so on. Now, Putin has been accused numerous times of being the one responsible for wanting to upkeep these values and for wanting to impose these values on Ukraine, regardless of the wishes of Ukrainians and, and Ukraine's sovereignty and right to decide what it wants for its future, but also with complete disregard of what Russians might want as well. Do you think that a change in leadership in Russia 
might offer Russians and Ukraine a beacon of hope for what their future might look like? Or do you think that his legacy of wanting to upkeep these traditional values and maintain Russia's sphere of influence will prevail? Oh, that's a very good question. Would a change in leadership? Or, well, I mean, on the one hand, I talked earlier about in Russia's domestic internal security, and, and I'm talking there about regime stability and concerns within the Kremlin about you know, its own stability and the fear of some form of popular uprising, as we've seen elsewhere, such as the Orange Revolution. And I think as we head, you know, obviously 2024-ish is when we've got the, the next uh, supposed elections, presidential elections in Russia. And I think you're going to see an increased sense of concern within the Kremlin about regime stability. And I think we've been seeing that more and more in the past year as the opposition really within Russia clamped down on and opposition such as it was, which is you know, now really <laughs> barely there, just I think that really making it very, very hard for anybody outside of the kind of Kremlin circle to, to challenge. Would a change in leader, if we saw one, lead to a different... Unless we saw some kind of significant political upheaval, within Russia, which at the moment I think is very unlikely because of the lack of opposition, organised opposition. I think, you know, anybody who succeeds Putin is likely to have been kind of groomed and share similar values. And I think depends, quite frankly, as to where the state of Russian-Ukrainian relations are in a couple of years. But I'm less I'm not particularly confident that any change in you know leader would would lead to any you know significant shift and certainly unlikely to see a leader a, a Russian president coming down okay we're quite happy for Ukraine to become a member of NATO for example I can't see that at the moment and I you know I can't see partly because we really have very little idea who may replace Putin. That was Professor Tracy German from the King's Russia Institute. We will now continue our conversation with Dr. Maxim Lukov to discuss the impacts and the role of media in the Ukraine crisis. Dr. Lukov is a research fellow at King's Russia Institute at King's College London in the United Kingdom and a researcher with Pollock Sociology Laboratory, Center for Independent Social Research at St. Petersburg. His research focuses on media, political communication, and political cognition in autocracies with a particular focus on Russia. He relies on qualitative and quantitative methods to explore how citizens make sense of the political world and authoritarian environments and a new hybrid media systems. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today, Dr. Ayukov. Um, so the first question I wanted to ask was specifically, how are Russia's actions against Ukraine being portrayed at home? And what has been the impact of this? The war or as social media call it, special operation, presented, I think there are three essential features which uh, of, of the Russian domestic media coverage of, of war. So first of all, they presented as legitimate. 
So basically, they building they building on the same kind of narrative tropes which they've been using since 2014. And according to this narrative, we've got a Ukrainian illegitimate uh, government uh, in Kiev, and this regime is oppressing Russian-speaking population, and they've been waging a war on their own population in eastern Ukraine. And their idea is that our the separation is just a response, right? So it's not offense, it's defense. And Putin himself said a couple of times that we had no choice, right? So he presents us as if it's a just forced and necessary reaction. So they also try to present us as overwhelmingly successful. So the idea is that Ukrainian army is basically, according to their presentation, is consists of two groups. So on the one hand, you've got this far-right nationalist uh, regiments, and they're vicious, they're violent, they often use civilians as, as shield or uh, for provocations. And according to you know, state media, they should be either destroyed or if Russian army is lucky, captured and tried by, by some tribunal. And then on the other hand, the majority, they say, is just conscripts. So then under military orders, uh, they don't want to fight Ukraine. They don't have the motivation to fight Ukraine. And that's why Ukrainian kind of resistance is a kind of a house of collapsing house of cards, right? So whenever they reach a certain territory, Ukrainian soldiers just surrender and that's it. And they show that, you know, the soldiers are treated with respect, sending the signal to other soldiers that just surrender, we will treat you with respect. Yeah, so they present it as, as a success. And they the third one is basically, it's what we see, what we know from the Iraq war and from any other wars, it's presented as a, as a clean war. So uh, they use very specific technical military jargon. Instead of saying invasion or war, they say special military operation. Instead of saying uh, bombing and shelling, they say high precision strikes implying that there are no casualties among the civilians. And they say that, you know, we don't touch civilians, we only attack military infrastructure, trying to basically hide casualties because casualties are a very important part of war. It can galvanize domestic public opinion. And they so far have been hiding, concealing all information about Russian uh, casualties on the Russian side. There is no way that there are no casualties because it's a large scale military engagement. There should be some, but they are just hiding this information. Yeah, so these are three, I think, essential features. And basically, yeah, uh, using these tropes, they're trying to convince the public this war is as uh, legitimate and rally support. And just a follow-up question based on that as well. How has social media played a significant role both in Ukraine and Russia? Because now we're, we're living in an age where it's easy for anyone to kind of access the internet and post what's going on online. Um, how has that in- impacted Ukrainians and Russians as well? It's very complicated because obviously you've got digital media, online, social media, and information just travels. As soon as some city is bombed, as soon as people people see something, they just upload it and post it. So it gives us many opportunities, but it also makes us more vulnerable because these reports are open to, they're often manipulated and used as disinformation. So sometimes people just post photos and images and videos from some previous wars and present them as, as if there was some, uh, something happening now. And Russian state media, they're kind of good at playing with these social media accounts because that's something they learned in 2014. Back then, when they annexed Crimea, for instance, they used the same strategy, incorporating images and videos from social media into their reporting. And that's what they're using now. So basically, they try to 
I think it's still distrust in alternative information because they often take images and videos from Ukraine and Ukrainian citizens are posting a lot of information when they're being bombed, shelled and see uh, fights and you find some ways to debunk this information by saying that, you know, these are not real videos. They were shot in 2014 and this collapsed buildings, they are not destroyed by us. They were destroyed by Ukrainian forces back, back in 2014 and 15. So they are, have become very proficient at manipulating social media, alternative social media, digital media information as well. And there is an explicit message saying that they're using this analysis as a pretext to say that don't trust alternative information. So don't try to look for information on social media because there is a lot of disinformation spread by, by the West, by Ukrainian government and, and so on. Thank you for that. So earlier in January, you published in research on how Russia's authoritarian regime relies on political disengagement of its citizens to maximize the impact of state-controlled media networks and broadcasts. So I was wondering, can it be made possible to bring about political engagement in Russia, if possible at all? What are the rapid changes that would need to occur that you mentioned in your research? There are kind of several layers here. The first one is that typically in autocracies, you see that people are less engaged just across all kind of authoritarian regimes in the world, because that's how the environment around them uh, is structured. So they understand the, that their votes are not meaningful. It doesn't make any sense to vote because the results are predetermined. So the media is censored. There's no information. And there is this you know general feeling of political apathy. And the Russian government in particular has been relying on the strategy. So there's some research showing that they've been trying to demobilize voters at key uh, elections. And except for some key moments like the annexation of Crimea, when we observed really strong rally around the flag effect, it's typically more about depoliticization, demobilization and political apathy. And specifically in the context of this current conflict, they've been basically bombarding people with the news about Ukraine and very biased news since 2014. And many people just are very tired and they have even more less motivation to actually watch the news because they understand that it does not affect their lives in any way. And they also feel that they've been manipulated and they don't trust media at all. So how can we make them more engaged? Well, that's a difficult question because obviously you need more kind of democratic environment for them in order to be more engaged, right? So you need to understand that you can actually somehow affect the course of your life and your community uh, in order to see political action as, as meaningful, right? So you have to see uh, at least some diverse political information, right? In order to have this impression that, that this information is credible. And yeah, I think the, the, the issue of political engagement is closely tied to this issue of democratization. You cannot really make them more engaged without bringing at least some democracy into the country. Thank you. And just to follow up from that. So there's a lot of discourse on Western social media, especially that is information what's going to bring down authoritarianism in, in Russia. And we see a lot of really brave Russian citizens protesting against the war in Ukraine and disagreeing with their current government. Uh, of course, they're being met with a lot of, of repression, but how far would you agree with the statement that it is information what can weaken um, or even bring down the authoritarian regime in Russia? How, how far would you agree with that statement that's being put out in Western media? I would say that information is a very important component of it. 
but it's not information itself, but how we use it. Because, well, back in the 2000s, there were a lot of, you know, these discourses about the importance and power of uh, new media in challenging authoritarian governments. And yeah, sometimes they play a really key essential role in uh, protests and democratization like the Arab Spring or Russian uh, protests in, in uh, early 2010s. But the autocrats, they are not naive or stupid. They also learn, right? So, and since this moment, Russian government has been actively learning how to use digital media. So they basically, before 2000, uh, so there was this wave of electoral protests in 2011, 2012. And before this moment, they did not much, uh, did not care much about uh, social media, digital media, and the internet. But back then, they and after this moment, they just realized that social media and, and the internet poses some uh, threat to the government, and they implemented around like uh, fifteen or twenty repressive laws trying to control the media sphere. So they basically ban online media, which are um, against the government. They also started to shape this online environment themselves through using their own online media, through using bots, trolls, and so on and so on. And just like in this case, incorporating information from social media into more kind of traditional media such as television. So yeah, right now it's it's not like you can just uh, give people access to the internet and they will get more democratic attitudes and decide to protest. It's about how we use it, what information we spread. And information itself is, is not a just ultimate solution. And speaking on Russia's peaked interest in, in the use of, of media and, and weaponizing media, what has been the role of Western alarmism regarding Russia broadly, but also Russia's actions in Ukraine more specifically in feeding Putin's narrative? So could we say that Putin has effectively weaponized Western alarmism to his advantage? That's a very difficult question because up until recently, that was my impression and the impression of many of my colleagues who focus on politics, comparative politics, because when you look at Putin's actions and the regime's actions as a political scientist, you tend to see some reason, you tend to, you know, try to analyze costs and benefits and strategy and things like that. But I was not uh, expecting uh, what happened a few days ago. So it was, it just did not make sense strategically. And there are, you know, possible explanations of why, why it happened. So yeah, my impression before was that, yeah, that there is a lot of alarmism and kind of uh, this, this accounts, this uh, precise dates of invasion and claims about imminent invasion, they uh, increase the perception of threat posed by, uh, by Russian, Russian military and, and Putin. And Western intelligence community in the US, uh, in Europe, they've been releasing this data, but now we see that they actually were right, right? So Putin eventually invaded. So yeah, I'm kind of ambivalent here because uh, on the one hand, I don't like alarmism myself and the, the alarmism clearly played some role in making Putin's threat seem more credible, but then they ended up here to be credible because he invaded actually uh, Ukraine. And now I just had a question with regards to the use of, of media by the average citizen. I'm sure that you're familiar with 
you know, online activism and how it's become more prominent for students like us that are interested in in global affairs and world affairs and, you know, trying to do our part and inform ourselves about what's what's happening around us. And there's a lot of campaigns going on online on ways to help Ukraine, whether that's donating or calling representatives. So in your opinion, is this type of online activism effective? in this particular scenario? And if not, is there anything that people outside of Ukraine and outside of Russia can do to help the cause? I think it does not hurt. Like, whether it's effective, it's, I think, a big theoretical question because there there is some a lot of research on this issue. Some people show that when people use social media and when they campaign and make other people aware, people become more politically engaged and knowledgeable. There are some other people saying that, you know, uh, there is a term selectivism. People basically click and see see information, but they actually become less involved because when you assign a petition, you feel like you just fulfilled your civic duty and maybe you have less motivation to actually do something and go and protest. So in regards to Ukraine, I would say that's important to make it as visible as possible. So of course, it now the situation now crucially depends on how other countries respond, EU countries, US, Canada, what kind of sanctions they will impose. And in order to make them pressure Putin more, you need to make other people pressure their governments more. So it's of course important to show that there's there are atrocities happening in Ukraine, it's kind of a legitimate war. But there are other ways you can donate money. Uh, there are many, organizations in Ukraine which actually need money, like uh, Ukrainian Red Cross, they basically buy uh, med kits and medical supplies to uh, help soldiers and civilians who have been hurt. Yeah, I think if you just Google that there are many basically instructions on what you can do to help Ukrainians. So spread information, donate money, pressure your own governments to be more active in pressing Russian government, Russian regime. Following up on that as well, I guess like the most effective government to protest against or engage with would be the Russian government itself. And in the news recently, I think as of right now, there's been over 1,700 protesters that have been arrested. Do you think that 1,700 protesters represents a significant part or a small fraction of Russian opinion? 1700 protesters were detained. So, of course, more people participated. So, at first glance, it's kind of not significant because, well, in a country with 140 million people, a couple of maybe dozen southern protesters is not much. But we should take into account the fact that Russia now has completely transitioned to an authoritarian regime, right? So, it's no longer like, you know, hybrid information, autocracy, whatever. So, they've been, we've seen and experienced. Uh, several ways of very severe political repressions. Many people were imprisoned, uh, many people were fined, there were many laws basically limiting their civic freedoms. And for, for many of them, for people who actually participated in this, pro- in this protest, it's a very huge personal investment. So this is a very high personal cost because you can be detained and you can be detained for two weeks, four months, or if you are unlucky, for years if they decide to prosecute you. So in, in this context, I would say that I, w- I was actually surprised that that many people participated in the process because we know that it's very, very, very dangerous. Yeah, but that's not enough, unfortunately. So there are a couple important 
points here. First of all, we, we see that what's happening now in Russia is people start try to initiate anti-war movement. So for anti-war movement, a very important thing is casualties, right? So Russian government hides and conceals any casualties. And that's when things change, like in Vietnam, Afghanistan, Chechnya, when people actually see that their own soldiers are being killed. That's uh, in general is very averse, averse to death. So yeah, it's very important to see some cracks and features in the structure we did. So we see to some extent that there are some changes happening. So some of the journalists working for pro-Kremlin state control sources recently signed this open anti-war letter and some of them were basically sanctioned. So some people just lost their jobs uh, after signing this letter. Cracks here and there, but that's, that's not enough. I mean, I don't know how how situation will unfold. So we know from historical accounts there are several very important ingredients for a, for a regime change, right? So you need a military defeat, which could happen if if uh, like uh, we need some pressure from inside, some internal uh, political tensions, and elite split, right? So there's there should be some defecting elites which could send a signal to other elites that you can actually yeah, be against Putin. Given what's currently happened in Ukraine and how I think it's taken a lot of people by surprise, in your opinion, what is the end goal here? Right now, Russia and Putin is receiving significant backlash across the world for his actions. And is there a long-term plan to mitigate that? Is there a, a plan in general? What's your opinion? You mean on the Russian side? Yeah. Plan. Well, I don't know. So like for months, many people have been trying to read Putin's mind and try to understand what's happening. Uh, and we don't know, right? So that's the problem with authoritarian regimes, especially personally authoritarian regimes, such as Putin's Russia, that they are very opaque, right? So they are very close. He relies on a very small circle of military security advisors and other elites. And even people who are close to the government, they're not really aware of, of details of decision-making process. So we cannot know. So judging by what he said during his addresses, he mentioned demilitarization and denazification as goals. So it sounds very weird. So I guess by demilitarization, he means regime change. So according to all these narratives about fascist government in Ukraine, he wants them to basically lay down weapons and he wants to basically have a controlled Russia-friendly leader in Ukraine. So ideally, I think he, want to, he would want to have a get rid of Zelensky and appoint some president, Russia-friendly president like it was before 2014. So, but I don't know, there are many scenarios, right? So he might want, uh, judging by this, you know, imperialistic grandeur he expressed during his speeches, he might want to actually go further and further and pressure some other countries, we don't know. Maybe he will stop pressuring Zelensky and there will be some negotiation and Zelensky will manage to negotiate some neutrality. But I think some middle ground is that he wants to basically get rid of Zelensky and get some Russia-friendly regime in Ukraine. And now I think we're moving a bit away from the emphasis on media, but I think it's still important to, to discuss it as much as possible. I'm curious to know what you think about NATO's role in this conflict, because it, it's obvious that you know NATO stands for territorial sovereignty and many NATO leaders have voiced their support 
for Ukraine. But I think that a lot of NATO members also have their hands tied with regards to what they can do. So from, you know, your expertise, what do you think NATO would have to do to stand for Ukraine, but also appease or confront Russia? First of all, I'm not a military expert, so I'm not qualified to answer this question. But uh, how I, I see it, NATO is in a very difficult position right now, because on the one hand, they, there is a military invasion of war happening in Ukraine, like in, the, in Europe, right? So it's just terrible, and they have to do something. But they can't for several reasons, because it's kind of prohibited by NATO official documents, right? So you cannot engage in... You cannot accept as a NATO member a country which is which has some territorial disputes. And on the other hand, it would mean a direct confrontation with Russia. And I don't know, we would not want to have this escalation. So in the end, NATO would probably defeat Russia, but we don't really want to risk the third world war, right? And that's why I think they're in a very difficult position. They need to respond, but they cannot really respond in a kind of military way. And the only thing they can do, and they've been doing for a couple of months, they're sending weapons to Ukraine, right? Providing military assistance, financial assistance, things like that. Based on what you've seen in, in Crimea and based on what you're currently seeing now, how do you foresee the role of, of media and the use of uh, I guess, media weaponization in, in conflict uh, playing out in the future. Do you think it's going to take an even more increased role? Should we foresee what some experts call a media war um, anytime soon, not necessarily in Russia and Ukraine, but more generally? Or do you think that the role of, of media in, in strategy is still going to have more of a side role in how things play out? Well, I think media organizations will, of course, play more and more important role. So I'm kind of skeptical and optimistic about the development because Putin's regime is a kind of authoritarian regime. So they mastered a few tricks how to manipulate media and that's it. And they've been doing, they've been doing it for quite some time. But what we saw a couple of months ago is that US and European countries and intelligence services, they started to play the same game trying to so they started to release a lot of information, a lot of intelligence, and uh, many members of the intelligence community who were interviewed, they openly acknowledged that it was a part of strategic communications campaign. So they basically started to use the same strategy Putin used. And this is uh, in terms of kind of media development in general, it's kind of warning sign because the more you rely on the strategies, the less people actually trust the media and trusts in the media and journalistic practices such as you know, impartiality, they are really essential to democracy. So if many countries start practicing these tricks and using this information at the same time, it will be very, very, very strong, uh, serious challenge to democracy and its key institutions such as the media. Once again, that was Dr. Max Oyukov. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the current situation in Ukraine. Today's show was produced by Michael Kolaparmbeth and Marie Asensio. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out all of our podcasts on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net. They can also be found on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show and want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, 
Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond the Headlines or on Twitter at B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take global affairs discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. Thanks for listening. See you next week.